Hello, this is Jay Khadija Abdurrahman. Today is Tuesday, March 9th, 2.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. This is the We Be Imagining podcast, examining the intersection of tech, race, gender, disability, and uh, surveillance in the COVID-19 era. I'm here with my co-host, Alain Mandel, PhD student at Cornell Tech. What's up, Ilan? Hey, Khadija, I'm Ilan. I use he, him pronouns. I work with uh, Professor Wendy Jew and uh... Today's the first nice day of weather, and this feels like a small thing, but I've been trapped inside, so it's very exciting. <laughs> yeah, my my New Year's resolution is to like have a relationship with nature that's inside of a book. I feel like my entire <laughs> world has become like email and Twitter, and I just live in a constant state of horror of like tech journalism. So I'm really excited to detour from that, and today we have Cedric Durant who teaches economics and development theories at the University of Paris 13 and at the EHESS, working within the Marxist tradition, working within the tradition of Marxist and French regulationist political economy. He is the author of several articles on the Euro crisis, the financialization globalization nexus, and the post-Soviet transformation. He's also a member of the editorial board of the radical online journal Contre Temps. Um, apologies for my pronunciation. And I'll say very specifically, it doesn't say in this bio from Verso, but he recently published a book, Fictitious Capital, How Finance is Appropriating Our Future. And then he has another book that we really are excited to read, but unfortunately don't speak French, uh, around techno-feudalism. So welcome to the show, Cedric. And if you would like to add anything else about yourself and your background. Hello, Khadija. Thanks for the invitation. I would just like to add that now I just moved to Geneva University. So I'm just speaking from Geneva, but that's uh, all the rest is just perfect. Thanks. Thank you. Um, Well, I'll say like what really led me to your book is with my friend Seda Gerses, who is a a computer scientist based in Belgium right now. We've been talking a lot about like the financialization of computational infrastructures and like what happens when these are introduced into like institutions of governance, because a lot of people in the field focus on this idea of like automating inequality or particularly like the garbage in, garbage out issue with historical, making predictions based off of historical data. But uh, and to the degree that they think about economics is a question of like privatizing public sector governance. Um, but there's something very specific about financialization. And I appreciate in Fictitious Capital how you open up with an example about the housing crisis and saying that this reveals um, kind of the operations of financialization and making this distinction um, between neoliberalism and globalization based on this uh, accumulation of value that's not yet produced in anticipation of it. Uh, but could you maybe say a little mo- bit more about kind of that opening thesis of the book and the point that you're trying to get across with the housing crisis example? Yes, in fact, we had two uh, main stories after the 2008 crash. The first story was about the idea of high morality in the financial world, uh, about the greed of financial people. And all there, there were a lot of stories explaining how people from Goldman Sachs or from other firms were were knowing that what they were doing was wrong and that somebody will lose some money due to their own decision. But I think that this first story, of course, is important because it reveals you some dimensions of immorality in the in contemporary capitalism. But that's not really going to the heart of the issue, which is much more systemic. And then we have a second story. And the second story is about financial instability. And I like much more the story. That's the story brought in by post-Canadians such as uh, Ayman Minsky. And the guy is truly an interesting guy. And the story is very sophisticated, very relevant. And basically, it says the following things. It says that once you open up the box of liberalization, uh, there will be an ongoing movement of more and more risky financial operations, more and more risky innovation. And what is very interesting is that the regulators will follow. There is a kind of hype of optimism about the self-stability of finance. And not only investors will believe this story, but the regulators will uh, believe this story too. And at the end of the day, you will have a crash, but a small, relatively small crash. And then the regulator will step in, the central bank will help, then you will have a second crash. So think about the Mexico crisis or Asian crisis in the 90s. Then you had the dot-com crash. And 
at the end of the day, you have a big, big crash, which will be in our case 2008. And uh, uh, in this sense, you have this kind of uh, internal instability, which is a, a, an ongoing feature of, of finance. So I think that these two stories, a story about immorality, greed, and so on, and the second story about internal instability of finance are good stories, the second better than the first one, but that's not enough. Something is missing. And what is missing, I think, is the meaning of the, socio the socioeconomic meaning of finance as value. What is the value in the financial world? What does that mean in socioeconomic terms, in political terms? And that's the problem I, I try to explore in the book. I was just hoping you could just expand on, on that point a little bit more. Like, what are the, you, you break it down nicely with the, with the three you know, sections where it's innovation, and then the other two, and I was hoping you could tell us a little bit yeah. more about the other two. Yeah, sure. So, so we have this very nice concept that is fictitious capital. Uh, that's a very nice concept. That's an old and classical concept in the 19th century that was very much used commonly among economists. Uh, and especially uh, Marx elaborated on that. And uh, the Marx, uh, Marx perspective on fictitious capital is very rich because it captures the ambivalence of the concept. On the one hand, for sure, finance is helping to innovate, is helping to uh, expand capitals. In, in one sense, if you want to think about that, finance is a way to imagine what could occur in terms of valorization. And that's the reason why finance developed in the 19th century. In the meantime, when you had a very uh, a strong uh, colonial development and infrastructure development in the global south. So there was finance in the north and then exploration and, uh, uh, and domination on southern people, but building of infrastructure too, uh, that was allowed by finance. And uh, in this sense, there is a kind of visionary dimension of finance in the destructive and oppressive capitalist sense, but in a, a meaningful uh, way, if you want, in, the ter in terms of ability to, uh, to, uh, to, uh, to, to build, to, to, to valorize capital. So that's the first dimension of finance in Marx's fictitious capital. But there is also a second dimension, and I think the second dimension, of course, you are very well aware of that. It's the speculation dimension. It's the fact that you can imagine, you can have very uh, all kind of phantasmagorias, all kind of fantasies in the financial dreams, and at some point, finance is feeding itself into unsustainable bets on future ability to valorize. And so you have these two dimensions in finance. On one sense, it's something that helps to overcome the internal limits of capital and to expand it away further. And on the other hand, it's also a kind of feeling of bubbles and instability and crisis. And that's, of course, what occurred at the end of a phase of rapid financial accumulation. So we had various important financial crises in the history of capitalism for centuries already. And if you want to think about the two biggest one, that's, of course, uh, 1929, uh, the big crash followed by the big depression, and then the Great Depression. And then we had this 2008 uh, crash, which led to the Great Re uh, Recession, and which is very much still in the background of what we are living in. Thank you. I was going to say the, the point that you're making about the ambivalence of Marx's fictitious capital is interesting because right after I read your book, I was reading Jackie, uh, Jackie Wang's Carceral Capitalism, and yeah. she's making this critique of, we could argue this was not actually like Marx's point of view, but a lot of Marxists being techno-optimists. And then critiques coming from the Black Panther Party, including uh, Kathleen Cleaver, saying that, you know, as both the automation of labor evolves and also the financial sector uh, starts to compose a greater portion of our overall economy, that Black people will be on the front line of kind of experiencing both this dispossession and being a site of, uh, for like predatory lending and kind of parasitic models of producing value. And so I guess I was just, when I was reading it, I really appreciated how you broke down that you have this initial kind of sale of real, real estate credit to households that serves as the foundation or raw materials for derivative products. And then through securitization, what happens is that you detach uh, the distributing of credit from exposure to overall risk. 
And like, so, so where do you parse these social contradictions? Where is where is the point for like political intervention? Because for a lot of people, they there was this idea that we were working towards this point of progress where capitalism, this would be the end. And you open up with the signs of autumn. Um, but it's not clear when I got to the end of the book, like, where is the moment for intervention? How do we get out of this? It seems a little bit um, despairing. Like, where do you see that moment where things are coming to Okay. Place? Okay, so we will go to that because it's very important. I think you phrased very well the problem. But uh, just before going to that, I think that in order to, to face not capitalism in general, but first financialization, which of course is part uh, uh, and a leading part of capitalism nowadays, you need to figure out the fact that when a fictitious capital is accumulated and is having very a lot of difficulty to, to, to stabilize itself, it becomes predatory. And in this sense, it's completely reactionary. And uh, you have the nice story about finance that will help to fund innovation, and that's a small part of the story. But we know that innovation uh, nowadays, it's problematic. It's not really uh, uh, useful in many ways, and it's oppressive in many other ways. But in the meantime, finance is also supported by uh, policies and uh, behaviors of financial firms that have no connection at all to any kind of real uh, creation of huge value, uh, real uh, increasing effectiveness, meaningful uh, innovation. For example, I will just indicate two directions. One direction, if you think about the, the development of finance in the course of the past decades, uh, this has a lot of to do with changes in terms of a regulatory framework. It's some diminishing taxation that helps companies to make more profits and so to pay more profits to, in the form of dividends and supportive uh, financial institutions that are receiving this, uh, this kind of uh, stuff. It's also, if you think about the weakening of the worker position on the labor market, which allows to limit the increase of, uh, of wages and so allows the expansion of profits, which are passed on to finance. But you also have a more direct parasitic dimension of finance. If you think about the fact that financial markets in the North, especially in the US, are uh, bringing in a lot of value produced along value chains uh, all over the world. And so in this sense, you have this kind of predatory dynamics, international predatory di dynamics, which is also very relevant if you want to think about finance. So if you want to close a little bit this first uh, layer, you need to think about finance when it becomes so big as it is today, not as a way to propel further capital accumulation, but on the contrary, on a weight on our uh, conjuncture, on our epoch, which means that uh, finance needs to be fed but by financial profits, and this feed is uh, going on through a very reactionary and oppressive manners. And that's one of the points I, I, I tried to make in the book. Uh, going now to your uh, questions about the contradiction and the political implications of this analysis. There is one big and simple implication of this analysis. If finance is a dead weight on our lives, we need to reduce the size of finance we need to reduce this pre-appropriation of, of what is to be produced, of the work that is to be done in order to free up the future. And I think that's among, if you want uh, to think about uh, the, way, the world of heterodox economics, for example, post-Keynesian and people like that, sometimes they put the emphasis on the fact that we need to stabilize finance. And they will uh, argue in favor of some kinds of regulation, uh, uh, policy regulation, uh, central bank interventions, and so on. So, of course, I think it's better not to have a huge financial crisis because on a day-to-day -day basis, that's bad for everybody. But if you lo look at the longer-term perspective or more political perspective, development perspective, you need to think about the fact that big finance in itself is bad because it closed the future, because it's a preemption of some ways of producing on some incomes that will be taken from people in their various dimension of their life, uh, on their pensions, in the form of C, fees, on their mortgages, on their uh, consumptions, uh, debt, and so on. So the, the main uh, 
policy message of the book is that to free the future, you need to downsize finance. So I don't know if you want to maybe to react on that, but I can elaborate a little bit on how we can downsize finance if you want. Well, I, you know, I was just looking at my notes and one of the highlights I have from the book is exactly, I think, the one you're making now where you said, uh, I do not see financial stability as a public good from which everyone benefits. And I think, I, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, that this is the point you're getting at, right? That like, we end up constantly recreating this moral hazard problem, which I think many people have written about, where we keep trying to prop up finance, stabilize finance. When, when that only serves to harm us in, in kind of longer term horizons. Yes, that's, that's perfectly true. And uh, uh, in, in fact, as, as long as you have finance uh, and you have the backing of the state behind finance, you have a kind of political validations of the claims of the financial community. And the financial community, it's the real world in even more unequal terms. Because inequality in terms of access to financial assets is even more big than inequality in the real world. So uh, the backing of the state in favor of financial stability is a kind of political promises to uh, the accomplishment of the inequality that are that are uh, consolidated, crystallized, if you want, in in the realm of the distribution of financial assets. So really, we we the left need to confront that, to confront the fact that financial stability is just, in fact, consolidating uh, the unfairness of, uh, uh, of the future as it is built in the financial claims. So how can we confront that? Uh, there is many two directions. Uh, the first direction is the fact that you can consider canceling some parts of debt. And there is a big part of uh, discussion, a long-term discussion, in the, especially in terms of uh, unequal exchange in the, at the global scale and mobilization in the global south against uh, uh, the debt of southern country and uh, uh, in order to obtain the cancellation of the public debt. And I think that this uh, kind of claims is very true and we, the left must support uh, the, the mobilization in this global south in favor of cancellation of, of public debt, of unfair debt. You really go into length about how the finance by necessity becomes predatory as it, you know, as it becomes you know, relevant to the state, right? And the state needs to prop it up and you create this reoccurring moral hazard problem. Yeah, 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 perfectly right. So, so there is a true problem of moral hazard. That's I just uh, I, I don't want to 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 think that it's not important to prosecute uh, malevolence in finance and so on. I'm very in favor of that. But that's far from being enough. That's even missing the main point, and that's that's what I want to emphasize. Uh, the main point is that when the state is backing finance in the name of financial stability, the state is backing a very unequal uh, uh, distribution of wealth, uh, an uh, unequal distribution of wealth that is even more important than it is in the in the world in terms of incomes. So that's something very uh, reactionary uh, uh, to to defend uh, financial stability in this sense, and. Uh, uh, how can we fight financial stability uh, in order to, to reopen the future? To fight financial stability, there are several ways, but we can think about three things. The first thing is that, true, we can cancel some kind of, of financial claims. And that's a point that is made for a long time for people from the global, in the global south in favor of debt jubilee. Uh, you had uh, social movement, for example, like the Committee for the Cancellation of uh, Debt of the South, which is making a very good work on that. And that's an ongoing work, and it must be supported for the left, of course, because it, that's very important for people in the South. But we can also think about how we could downsize finance in the global north. And here there is something that is a little bit tricky. I remember having once a conversation with David Harvey, where he explained that, well, in fact, I'm not very much in favor of cancellation of the Eurozone debt. You know why? Because my own pension funds, in part, depends on the, uh, on the, the fact that the public debts in uh, European countries will be paid back. So I'm a little bit worried about that. So I don't think that's a, a good way to, to, to do it. And I think he has a point, Harvey. Even if there is 
there are huge inequalities in terms of uh, financial wealth. There are still an important part of people in the global north whose uh, uh, pensions uh, and some forms of social protections depends on finance. So we need also to, to think about the fact that financialization is not just an accumulation of financial wealth, of claims, but it's also financialization of some uh, social functions. And we need to think about the resocialization of these social functions. And here we can think in particular about pension systems, but we can also think uh, about the role of, uh, for example, student uh, fundings for students that sh should not be debt, but should be uh, uh, fundings to, to, to uh, support students in the course of their uh, studies. Uh, we can uh, also think, for example, in terms of uh, health insurance to have uh, public options, which not be which will not be linked to uh, uh, to insurances, we, which are linked to uh, strong financial uh, uh, buildings. So uh, in this sense, when you think about downsizing finance, that's not only an issue of canceling some kind of claims, in particular public debt or student debt and so on, which is very right, but that's also thinking about how to reorganize social functions that are taken on by finance right now. Thank you. Um, and I was wondering if, you know, what's interesting, a lot of times with um, computer science and ethical AI, we talk about the way that these systems become invisibilized. And when you're describing in the sign of autumn chapter, uh, kind of what sets the stage for financialization, you talk about since the 1980s, there's this continuous rise in indebtedness, particularly, particularly in what you call the main rich economies, growth of the financial sector share in the economy. Um, a rise in financial profit share of overall profits, growth of inequalities, decline in industrialization in the high-income countries. Um, these are things that I feel like are visible, even including the the question of indebtedness on the level of like student debt in particular. There's a lot of public debate about that. What I feel like is a lot harder for people to understand exactly, exactly how it becomes uh, legitimated and justified is this point about speculation and fictitious capital. The idea that like, what does it even mean to valorize that which is not yet produced? I think it's, e even while people appreciate kind of the social consequences of both 1929 and then later 2008, I think like that's, I, even I was just trying to explain to like some random people that came to go visit me at my house and I was, I was trying to explain this to them and they were so confused. They're like, so it's just like playing dice outside, you know, like how does this stuff become legitimate? Um, and when you're talking about socialization, that's one thing that came to mind. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about that. Yeah, we need to think about that in terms of very concrete. There is this sociologist, Wolfgang Streck, that talk about the crisis of democratic capitalism. And he say that more or less there has been some kind of the constant part, if you want, in the, in the capitalist domination was more important up to the 70s, maybe, than uh, afterwards, in some sense, because uh, there was a kind of progression of wages. Uh, well, there was, of course, a lot of oppressions and inequalities and so on, a lot of resistance, but at least we, can, we see a very strong rupture in the early 80s in terms of value, uh, uh, value distribution. And at that point, we experience a kind of crisis in the sense that uh, the ability to, to provide to people access to some uh, improvement in terms of social securities or in terms of, uh, of uh, wages uh, and consumption standards became uh, harder and harder for the system to provide. And in the meantime, of course, capitalists that were under pressure during the, the previous decade were very not happy with the situations and fought back in order to reestablish a higher uh, level of profitabilities. And how can you handle uh, these kind of claims when your economy is not growing very rapidly? And finance, in fact, is a way to do that. And I will explain how. If you want, when you have some debts, you are two people that are happy. One, people, one guy or one girl that is happy is the person that got his check, that has some cash and can spend it, and that's, well, very nice. But on the other side, the uh, bank that is owing that, uh, that loans, uh, it can think about that loans as an asset 
that it will be able to valorize in the future. Uh, basically, finance allows two people to be happy with only one piece of money. The guy that is receiving the money uh, due to the loan and the guy that is uh, thinking that it will be paid back. And that there is this kind of magic in finance that, it, in fact, it is duplicating value. And so it helps to resolve some kind of political contradiction in the 80s and the 90s. You had a lot of, uh, in, you, had, you had some increase in consumptions for ordinary people due to rising debts. You had some, uh, I don't, I will not say improvement because there was no real improvement, but at least stabilization in terms of public uh, access to, uh, to some kind of public services or minimal social protection due to rising public debt. And in the meantime, the financial community was uh, very happy because it was a wing, a growing part of the future. And uh, that's where uh, it comes uh, to, if you want to understand the, 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 the current situation and the political contradiction I was talking about before, it's exactly for this reason. It's at some point, the ability to pay back uh, become difficult. And the promises that were made in the past became difficult to, to be uh, respected. And in that moment, at that moment, the political contradictions are growing bigger and the economic contradictions are growing bigger too. And that's exactly uh, this idea of fictitious capital. On the one hand, it helps to solve problems on the short run and it may help to propel further capitalism. But on the other hand, at some point, you experience crisis, political crisis, when people do not want to pay back their debt. Think about student debt. I hope very much that in the US, the, the students will be able to win the fight in order to obtain cancellation of debt. But of course, that will mean that on the other side, people will, lie, will lose. So you, you, you have very strong political fight in, in, in this sense that are uh, the consequences of the past dealt, deals that were made in the name of, of, uh, of finance. Yeah, I... I really liked the example you, you gave of global warming, right? That like when we start pricing in and, and kind of securitizing these, you know, the futures imagined within these forms of fictitious capital, it forecloses alternative futures and it really ends up becoming this kind of necropolitics, right? Um, and I was hoping you, you could maybe elaborate a little bit on that. Yes, sure. You're perfectly right. And that's a very important point. Because now two thirds of world capitalization in, is linked to, uh, to very intensive carbon activities. Extractivism or EV industries are very highly polluting industries. And that means that uh, two thirds of value on capital markets depends on the future activity of these firms. That means in other ways, in other uh, way that means that investors right now are making valuation based on an ongoing exploitation of uh, production of carbon and, and, and pollution of the atmosphere. And that's something very, very, very crude in one sense, because if you make the math and you look at the fact that some uh, activities need to be downsided in order to reduce carbon emissions, then you cannot have the profits that are uh, uh, anticipated in the current valuation of big firms uh, from uh, uh, extractive industries, uh, uh, automotive industries, uh, and other big, uh, big firms uh, like that. So in this sense, uh, you have, uh, the, the mainstream is talking about the tragedy of the horizon, to, to mention that, but that's show you the real myopia of finance and the fact that there is only two ways out of that or you will have an ongoing climate crisis. There will not be strong policies to fight that. Or, or the second option is that some of the anticipation of profits made currently by fi finance, the financial community will not be respected. And so that means that we'll have, you will have some future important financial crisis. So in one sense, the downsizing of finance that I was mentioning earlier is inevitable if you want to downsize uh, the, the the impact uh, of carbon activities on uh, on the atmosphere. I'm just curious. So the the kind of policy proposal and discussion you see in the U.S. around this is is largely centered around something like a green new deal. And while reading your book, I was curious, like if you have this mass influx of capital around things that are, you know, ostensibly better than than fossil fuels. 
um, do you does this does this change the kind of calculus you're describing, or because of the liquidity of you know financialization, they they will just basically shift into new modes and and into new industries, and and it just reproduces this process and maybe pushes things further down the line. That's a very very important question, Ilan. My take on this will be the following one. The first is that in fact we are uh, in living uh, a kind of intellectual death of financialization. Why intellectual death? Because uh, the rise of financialization was much more in line with the rise of neoliberalism. And there was this idea that the, if you want the core of the system, the central, uh, the central uh, node of the system uh, should be financial markets. That's the true decision about the orientation of uh, uh, the development of our societies will be resolved in the exchanges in financial markets. And this idea is completely dead nowadays in the sense that financial markets are only surviving due to massive, huge uh, support by uh, central banks, which means that the prices that they are using are not relevant in any way to understand anything. Which brings me to the issue of the Green New Deal. The main point about the Green New Deal for me and I think everything is not clear in the proposal, so that's an ongoing conversation, is that if you shift from the decision on financial market to a more uh, uh, political decision-making process, to a more uh, uh, explicit deliberation about the criteria. In other words, you need to shift to some forms of planning in order to organize this transition towards low uh, carbon economies. If you do not have this kind of uh, planning, financial markets are not able to deal with that at all. But if you have this kind of planning that I am arguing in favor of, and I think some dimensions of the Green New Deal could be interpreted in this direction, that means that you need to disarm financial markets. That means that you need to close some activities. That need to you need to downsize very much the valuation of uh, in some parts. So you you need to to organize that. Markets are not able to to take with such huge task. So there is a big big political stake here in terms of downsizing finance and in the meantime reorganizing the coordination of uh, the mode of development toward more. Uh, deliberate planning processes, uh, more political processes. Uh, in, very clearly, if you want uh, me to phrase out that differently, what we need now is not a future valuation. What we need now is a future quantity of carbon that will be able to emit in the, in the future decade. And that's not a price calculus. That's a kind of technical calculus. That's a calculus of another, uh, uh, in another way. And we need to bring in that some justice, some fairness, some qualitative decision, which are not, which market are not able to make. Well, technical, but also this raises the question of the moral hazard, right? Because the whole point of Beyond Greed is that there's like some structural things that incentivize insider trading, that incentivize Ponzi schemes, that like incentivize capital be ch channeled into these more sophisticated financial products. But at the same time, I was thinking on one half, you have the state, you have this uh, diagram of the Minskian financial super cycle, and we see that you know, as time is going by, uh, the the quality of the securities is decreasing and the scale at which the state is intervening is higher. Um, so you see further and further backing of the, of the state backing this kind of financial instability. But on the flip side, in thinking about climate change, I also think about like the shadow banking and in particular BlackRock, right, which is the largest financial, uh, largest money manager. Um, controlling, I think they manage more money than the GDP of any country except for the U.S. and China. Um, and in here, you define, uh, you say shadow banking operations add a transformation of liquidity to the traditional operations, transforming maturities and transforming the quality of credits. And so how do we understand kind of this role of like centralized financial sector and these money managers, along with this like increasing role of state intervention to back the financial instability as we're thinking about this environmental crisis? Yeah, that's okay. So there are two questions. The first is about uh, uh, shadow banking. Shadow banking, basically, it's finance in network. That's uh, uh, 
that's transaction that are private transaction most of the time and that allow financial institution to make fees. So that's part of the problem. Uh, that, that was a very important part of the problem uh, leading to the crisis of 2009. And, uh, but that's a different issue than the issue of centralization of financial assets in big firms like Vanguard or, or BlackRock that you just mentioned. And I think the centralization, in fact, is a great chance for, for, for the transition. Because with, with such firms that are very diversified, in fact, they are resembling more and more as uh, to the structure of the economy centralized in one point. Uh, and so we have, there are private firms, of course, but in one sense, they are organizing the centralization of the economy that we need to tackle the transition uh, in terms of climate change. The problem is that, of course, they are doing that with a very good perspective uh, with very uh, um, specific interests and uh, and they are uh, in the service of the clients so they are reproducing these inequalities and so on but in on the other side as they are centralized and they have a view on the various dimensions of the economy they are able to kind of capture the necessity to to, to pivot uh, the, 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 the structure of the economy toward a, a greener economy however that would not be enough and I think that one way to think about this intervention, this shift from uh, from uh, um, uh, finance as the central node, the central coordinating mechanism of the economy toward a more conscious uh, direction of the economy could be made by sizing these kind of institutions. So you can or re regulate them very heavily in terms of they must, uh, the assets that they own must uh, decrease their impact in terms of carbon of X uh, each year, or you can intervene more directly to them and uh, appoint public uh, servants to, to, uh, to uh, overcome their activities and uh, to, to, to uh, uh, organize the shift toward uh, uh, priorities that are consistent with the objectives of, of the Green New Deal. But there is a kind of political confrontation here. That's what I want to emphasize. There will not be a spontaneous shift from, from uh, uh, finance toward uh, the transition because there is a lot of money that needs to be lost. I'm, I'm just curious, you know, in the U.S., in, in response to, you know, just like utter institutional failures due to COVID-19, and then later again during the summer, uh, you know, uh, during the, the kind of protests because of the murder of George Floyd, we saw just like unprecedented amounts of mutual aid. And I am curious, like where on balance do you see the, the value in this kind of organizing by, by kind of mutual aid groups and, and people you know, who by the nature of their organizing are already divorced from financialization, right? That like, rather than having a centralized response, if you sufficiently build out things like mutual aid networks, you you no longer face face the problem you're describing. I'm, I'm not saying that this is necessarily my take. I'm just curious. Uh, no, no, I, I, think, I think you're perfectly right. And I don't want to uh, to overemphasize what I have said in terms of centralization before. I think that centralization is very much needed and required to confront finance because finance is so centralized nowadays. So we have no other choice than to confront them at the level that they are. However, in terms of imagining, imagining uh, alternatives, uh, uh, educating ourselves, uh, creating new space, uh, we very much need this kind of decentralized local initiatives, uh, mutual aid, and in all the domain, uh, you, you can think about self-defense against police racism. You can think about uh, in terms of uh, organizing access to food of uh, good qualities at the local level. You can think uh, in terms of also alternative uses of 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 tech uh, tech uh, of tech information uh, all these kind of stuff are very important and maybe we can also use them at some point to scale them up so but uh, okay that's not that's not uh, only centralized uh, strategic way of doing things our only local uh, uh, dimension uh, will uh, help to to build some uh, separate trajectory i think that we need both and we it's very important not to oppose them i think that's uh, uh, thank you for your question ilan uh, for that because i really do not want to uh, to kind of downsize the relevance of this kind of more uh, local mutual aid uh, dynamics that are very important too 
Well, Ilan is also articulating my uh, existential <laughs> angst about <clears throat> mutual aid. And like to put it very crudely, like one day I was thinking about if Marx said, like, you know, let the proletariat seize the means of production as mutual aid. Like, can we just have slightly more of the circulating currency? Like there's a degree to which I worry that all of this GoFundMe, you know, if you're looking at it on scale, this I was partic particularly thinking about this because I saw a GoFundMe that was like half a million dollars. And I was like, is this really an improvement off of the nonprofit industrial complex? At least there's like some mode of transparency through 990s and even just a question of like, not fraud, but like implementation and logistics. Like how do we even, you know, hold organically decentralized, like kind of mutual aid funds at that scale accountable? Um, and I guess how that connects to me to the shadow banking question. And maybe this is not true, like, in terms of like studying and analyzing political economy, but, but just from like an everyday person perspective, I often think about, as opposed to the mutual aid, looking at the nonprofits, like for example, uh, here, any KC foundation is a big one and looking through their 990s, like most of it is not spent on program expenses. It's invested into BlackRock kind of specifically, and there's like 16 of them. So we're talking like billions of dollars. And so it just feels like so much of this uh, money that we see like, we experience a citizen's austerity politics, but like, where is the value going when you're thinking about a Panama Papers, all of those things? It's like, it seems to be going to the shadow banking and to the tax havens. But um, is that just kind of not as important when you're looking at the overall analysis? No, you're perfectly right. The issue of uh, tax havens is absolutely huge. And the work of Gabriel Zuckman, and that is uh, is completely convincing. You had right now a, a huge part of uh, wealth that is hidden in in uh, tax havens, and of course, this wealth is specifically the wealth of the the, the richer people. So, so in this sense, uh, that's also a big part of the conversation. Finance is also it's not only downsizing finance; that's also another dimension is reducing the mobility of capitals in order just to be able to implement uh, the rules that that are decided politically. Because nowadays, uh, a big part of the rules are just not respected because financial corporations or, or, or capital markets are able to, 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 to escape that rules thanks to mobility. And that could be tax evasion, as, as you said, but that also could be investing in area where social rights or environmental standards are not respected. And as you can move freely from one region to another, you can completely benefit from uh, overexploiting labor or destroying nature. And I think it's not it's not uh, it's not acceptable. So reducing the mobility of capital is also a big part of of trying to to be able. And that's a kind of more immediate way to be able to more uh, to size more uh, uh, to have more democratic empowerment against uh, this. Uh, this uh, very huge power of finance. In in response to my my previous question, you said specifically that uh, financialization requires a centralized response because it is itself so centralized. And it's hard for me to ask a question about a book that is not in English and that I haven't read. But I am curious. In in my mind, tech in the United States is incredibly centralized. Would would you say that? tech as an industry also demands a centralized response? Uh, I think so. Part I will say the same as I said before, in the sense that you have two levels of response. One is centralized because you need to face capital at the scale where capital is. And the other one is the empowerment and the reimagination of the resources that we have at the local level in order to, to build other ways to organize our life that the way that are organized by capital nowadays. So if you think in terms of tech, that's completely incredible. In one sense, we have a kind of uh, victory of Marxism in the sense that we have more and more centralization of assets and socialization of uh, uh, economic life and life in general, in fact. We are depending on each other much more than ever. We are able to collaborate at a scale that was never possible in the past. So in this sense, you have more socialization. And uh, however, the problem is that this socialization is governed by private companies, by private entities that orient 
desocialization in specific ways that allow them not only to profit, but also to be able to, to reinforce their own uh, power. So in this sense, uh, tech need to be confronted at the at, at, uh, at a central level. So here, there are a lot of interesting discussion in terms of the responsibility of what is occurring due to algorithm management. So you can have some kind of regulatory uh, intervention at that level. Uh, the implementation of Algorithm must be related to some kind of responsibility, penal responsibility, legal responsibility. But you have also uh, a policy that needs to be think uh, 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 in terms, of, for example, of public services. In fact, if you think about Amazon, Amazon, that's uh, something that needs to be thinking of in terms of public infrastructure. That need to be, uh, that's not that different from the postal service that was invented a few uh, centuries ago. And uh, at some point when it's so decisive for the organization of, uh, of collective life, it's a kind of natural monopoly. And in fact, <laughs> the economic theory, even the mainstream say that you cannot hand a uh, natural monopoly to private companies. So the public need to step in at this point. And finally, and here we are moving to one more newer uh, dimension if you want. And I, I, I'm, I'm sure that you already discussed that in this podcast and with your colleagues, but we need to think about data as commons. So we need to, inv to invent a regulatory regime that allow communities, public services and various actors to mobilize uh, the data and uh, to socialize them and to build new uh, new uh, applications, new way to use these data that are really meaningful for, for the people in general. So that's, uh, if you want, that's the direction I would mention if you want to think about socialization in a progressive way. Because right now we have a socialization, but in a regressive way, in a very worrying way, where we have more and more centralization of wealth and of power in the meantime. Yeah, it would be great with our remaining time to go more down this road. This is something that I think about a lot. I mean, one example is the Luddites, right? Which are sometimes used like colloquially as an example of somebody who's technophobic, but no, I mean, they were protesting against the Industrial Revolution. But when they're literally striking into the machine, it's easy to conceptualize because those kind of infrastructures were not invisible in the way that like Google is for a lot of people. And, you know, I think in following particularly the firing of Timnit Gebru from Google Ethical AI, there's like more of a spotlight on collective attempts to organize, whether through unions or through other kinds of protests. But frankly, it doesn't seem like there's a clear strategy and a clear path forward, particularly given those with the greatest amount of like autonomy and self-determination are like the furthest removed from the context of the warehouse workers who are like, almost like as if they were on a plantation uh, being timed, how many items can they pick per second? So like, where do you see um, kind of like, given your economic analysis, like where, where are the places that you push? Yeah, I think there is a bad response that is very popular now. And the bad response is this idea that you just need to break up uh, tech companies and rebuild uh, competition. And I think that, of course, that's appealing as a solution because it gives you a sense that you can downsize the power of these uh, frightening companies. And I, I understand that people are eager to find a way to deal that easily and rapidly. But on the other hand, I think that it's not a good response for, for many two reasons. The first reason is that, in fact, I don't believe that competition will help us to better handle the higher degree of socialization we are living in now. We need some way to cooperate and not to organize this socialization with more competition. And I can just give one example. In Europe, there is no uh, competition. Uh, there has been a competition judgment. And following that, Google is implementing a kind of uh, um, auctions in order to allow some other search engine to be implemented in its Android system. And what is the result of this higher competition in the realm of uh, uh, search systems? Is that the company that succeed in uh, getting into your phones are the most exploitative companies because they are the, the companies that are able to anticipate more on the, uh, the value that they will be extracting on your searches, on your privacy, and so on. So here, competition is, in fact, 
leading towards even more, if you want, uh, uh, uses of abuses of power by, by tech companies. So I think that's a very important way. Then when you are say that, that you do not want competition to fight big tech, that's here yeah, becomes a tricky issue. So I was mentioning this idea of responsibility of algorithm, this idea of building some forms of public services, and this idea of opening data as commons to allow some forms of progressive socialization. But that's uh, very much a work in process, and I, I think we need to work on that, yeah. And to collaborate in new ways between tech people, social movements, and, uh, and, and economic people. Uh, and when you say this opening data as comments, could you say a little bit more about that? I mean, because what comes to mind is like Assange, but I, I'm assuming that's not what you mean. No, I think, uh, so I hope I will not say stupid things because I think that some of people that are listening to are very much more in, in, in data science than I am. But basically the idea is the following one, is that right now you have a huge power of this company that is connected to their ability to centralize the data and to learn thanks to the centralization of the data. And the more data you have, the more you know about the behavior of people, the more you know of innovation possibilities, and the more your services are, are, are effective and the more people are giving you their data. So there is this kind of vicious circle that make this company uh, even more powerful at each time. So in order to break that circle without splitting the data into small uh, uh, entities are without uh, uh, commodifying the data. Uh, you can think about building uh, data as commons in the sense that this data should be, uh, be of course, anonymized, but be available for whoever want. And in order to allow people to, to work with this data and to, uh, and to imagine useful way of, uh, of uh, mobilizing them, instead of letting them uh, in the private end of huge companies or even in the, the end of secretive states, which is not what we want, I think. So I think that building the data as commons is a way to think about how we can coordinate in a more sophisticated way in this age of, of, uh, of, of big data and, uh, and to mobilize this very powerful tool uh, toward uh, the satisfaction of the need of the people. And in one sense, uh, the COVID crisis show how is it important. The fact that at some point Google was opening its data on mobility just show how it is useful. And it could be useful for very, a lot more things. And we do not know simply what is in this data now because it's private. Well, that's interesting. That's maybe a more optimistic take than I have. Um, in part because like for me, the connection between your overall argument and the data is a one of control. And so one of the things that we don't see exploring so much in, in this book, I'm not sure about the new one, but during this time period where you're looking at the financialization and dispossession, I also think about one, the rise of mass incarceration and more recently, like whatever the limits of the term are, what we think about with Shoshana Zuboff's uh, surveillance capitalism. And so there seems to be a certain response that to the inequality that you collect this data to like manage and modify people's behavior. And even though we are like tremendously socially dependent, like on a, on a more, people experience it almost like more atomized, right? Like it's a percent of profound alienation, fragmentation, and even just like within people's families, like maybe for Marx, a victory, you know, like abolish the family, but at the same time, people feel so uh, alone, especially now with COVID. I feel like those uh, boundaries of like uh, social systems have been even more reinforced. So I'm just curious, like when you're thinking about this resocialization, how do you take into account like how much this has become intertwined with the surveillance? You're very, you're very right about that. So I have no specific competencies in terms of uh, surveillance, mass incarceration, and so on. I know it's very important, of course, especially in the US. But the comment that I could make is the following one, is the idea that, uh, uh, in fact, uh, this big data, they are nothing else than us, that they are part of us that are brought together and that helps to make sense of the world to the social world and that helps to navigate the world. The problem is that the way they are structured uh, the, uh, result in the fact that when they are coming back to us in the forms of algorithm, in the form of surveillance, in the form and so on, they are already foreign to us. 
we are uh, alien to them. And there is, we do not, we are not able to recognize the fact that they are just coming from ourselves, from our friends, from our people around us. And uh, that's uh, the idea that uh, uh, organizations that are structuring this uh, in and out of data are in fact capturing the power uh, linked to, uh, to, to data. And uh, in fact, I'm not very optimistic. I just said that the only way to escape uh, a very harsh uh, concentration uh, of political and economic power, and both are very much connected in an area of financialization, because if you are not able to, to make enough profits in order to, to, to sustain your financial uh, profit, you will need to, uh, to oppress more people to be able to extract more value from them. So in, in such an age, I'm not optimistic at all, but I think that the only way to move forward positively is to break this power, this monopolistic power linked to the control of the data. And that was the, the point that I, I was pointing out. Yeah, I mean, I guess like Cedric, I want to give you a chance if you want to talk a little bit about the thesis of the book uh, that's out right now in French. And then also, I guess my last question is that you talk in, in sort of fictitious capital about um, like the knowledge economy and a little bit about Facebook and Google. But I feel like are you, you say explicitly at one point, like some of that data is not even available to us yet. And so much has changed even since this has been released. And so I was wondering if you who. And here you say, you kind of make a point that it's not ostensibly different than any other aspect of the economy, but I'm wondering if you have any new thoughts about uh, gig, gig economy slash servanthood. Yes, yes. In fact, the point that I'm developing in the book is that there is a kind of qualitative change related to the rise of these uh, platforms and to the control of the data. Because on the one hand, you have huge economies of scales. That's the circle that I was thinking about. The more data you have, the more services you have, the more people has, are using your services and the more your services are, 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 are efficient and the more you have data. So there is this kind of very... Uh, positive in one sense uh, circle for the companies that are growing even more powerful at each round. But in the meantime, you have something that is also very, uh, very original and that I think not everybody has, has been thinking of, is that new data are in fact very rare. Uh, it's very original data are in fact very rare. You can uh, reuse the data, but create a new data, get new information is kind of difficult. And in this sense, you have an absolute scarcity in, uh, of the original data. And when you think of this combination of scarcity of data on the one hand and huge economic scale on the other hand, you have a new kind of dynamics, economic dynamics, that is not the same as the dynamics of industrial capitalism. The rules of competition are, are not the same. And here, the new rules of, of competition are much more around the idea of conquering data land, uh, of conquering data sources in order to build some kind of fortresses where you will be able to gather new data all the time. And this, the, this is the reason of the, the title of the book. This reminds us very much of feudalism in the sense that competition here is equal to conquest. And I think that we are experiencing this kind of, of moment in the, the political economy where conquest is becoming more and more important with, it, with the political part, very important in that. And in the meantime, we have less uh, the productive dynamics of capitalism in terms of creating of new use value and so on, because the emphasis of companies is more on conquering space than on creating use value. And I think that's the point I, I'm trying to make in the, in the book. And that's a kind of warning that's not, uh, uh, that's not an anticipation of what's going on, but that's an observation of the process that is becoming to, 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 to be more and more uh, relevant. In fact, no, uh, everybody knows that big tech companies are the biggest companies in the world. So that's the, very much the, the present uh, situation of capitalism. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. So we have like a, um, a ritual at the end of each show where we ask people to recommend something they're reading, listening to, watching. Um, ideally, one thing on topic, one thing off. Uh, is and I, I forgot to warn you earlier in the show, so I apologize. Uh, but I, I can tell from your citations that you read a lot. So if you could recommend something, but it can also be like you know a tree. Um, yeah, I will. Uh, what 
what can I recommend now for you to read that is very, I think there is this book by Aaron Benanav about automation that is very important for people interested in, interested in work and, uh, and tech. Uh, so I will uh, look at that for sure. Not just uh, this idea about uh, the, the fact that the left need to think about what are the implications, strategic implications of this hegemony of, of finance, dying hegemony of finance and rising hegemony of, of data. And I think the two main directions are data as commons and planning as a new way to coordinate the economy. And oh, you can imagine democratic way of managing the data and planning the, the, the mode of development are I think the most pressing question for the left nowadays. Well, thank you so much. This is Cedric Duran, author of uh, Fictitious Capital and Techno-Feudalism. This is Tuesday, March 9th, uh, 3.25 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You can catch us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, whatever your favorite listening is. Oh, and check out our Patreon. Please become a patron. Um, that's it, y'all. Thank you so much. Bye. Thank you so much.